Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Daniel Pidcock, who is the co-founder of Gleanly and the creator of Atomic Research. Uh, really excited to have you here today to talk about, of course, Atomic Research and where it came from and where it is now. Uh, we've got JH here, too. Yeah, excited for this one. I feel like one of the first concepts I got exposed to when I was doing uh, kind of repository stuff was Atomic Research uh, a couple years back and excited to explore it. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm really honored to be here. So thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been listening to a lot of the um, a lot of the podcast and there's some real favorites in there. So uh, enjoying it. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. Cool. It's actually funny you mentioned that, JH, when I joined Q4 2017 user interviews, just a few months after JH joined. And one of the first things you shared with me, JH, was this article on atomic research all those years ago. So Cool to uh, have you on now and to to dig into it. Um, Thank you. So I imagine we have some listeners who are pretty familiar with atomic Mm -hmm. research and others who maybe are not at all familiar. So let's start with the beginning. What is atomic research? Well, it's really simple. It's basically the process of taking a piece of knowledge and breaking it down into its atomic parts. So we define that as four distinct parts. Uh, the experiment, which is the source of the learning, wherever it came from. And experiment sounds a bit formal. It doesn't need to be, you know, in a laboratory or anything like that. It could even just be something you overheard on the bus, but it's where the the information, the data came from. Um, and then there's, <clears throat> the next one is a fact. So that's what we learned as factually as possible. And the reason we call it a fact rather than a finding um, is just to remind people that it's it's not our opinion of what we've seen. Um, or what we've heard or what the data says it's it's what the data says or what the person has said if we're interviewing someone Um, whereas the next item the next uh, atomic element so to speak is an insight and that is our opportunity to say right this is our opinion on the data you know this is what we think is the cause of it or the effect what it what it means to us and then finally we have recommendation which is what we're going to do about it and the great thing about recommendations is they tend to be testable, so they come back around to experiments. So that really simple process of breaking knowledge down, um, I, I think, becomes really powerful in, first of all, understanding your research. But the reason we kind of created it was actually to be able to create uh, a kind of a scalable knowledge uh, repository with these like nodes of knowledge uh, that could interconnect. Um, and it's that connection you know, being able to bring different elements, different knowledge from around an organization and bring them together to come up with ideas or have lots of different ideas about the same knowledge as well and kind of explore what it means to us. Uh, that's where it gets really exciting and really fun. The <clears throat> the thing that always comes to mind for me is, you know, you're in a moderated user interview call, you're speaking to somebody and you ask them a question and they just kind of come back with like all of this different stuff, right? So... Mm. I was trying to do this and I got confused by that and then this and that. And you might have it as like a note taker, you know, a handful of things, but there's probably a couple of atomic like insights in there. Is that, is that right? Am I like, yeah, Oh, they were anxious about this. Is that, is that like how granular you're getting when you say this stuff? Yeah. I mean, I would, I always try and say there's no right or wrong way to do these things. And it sh- it's really dependent on the type of research you're doing, the organization you are or anything like that. Um, but one of the things we have on Gleanly, which is the tool we built around the um, around the process to try and aid the process, um, is one thing we were really clear about is we we kept all uh, items where that's an, um, a fact, an insight, a recommendation really short. So we have a limited 255 characters, which isn't all that much. 
And every time someone's come to me and said, oh, I need more characters, we've looked at it, and it's either been the case that they're going into too much detail uh, and it just could be simplified down. So someone's talked at length, but it could be summed up uh, a little bit more succinctly. Um, or the alternative is, yeah, they're talking a lot about the subject, but there's lots of points there and they should be broken out as individual things. And the whole point of this breaking it down is that someone can come in and glance at what they, at the different items, the different molecules and uh, or different atoms, I should say, and just be able to understand them almost at a glance. You know, they don't have to spend ages reading something to understand why it's being connected to this or what the relevance is. So what's a, maybe we could use an example of uh, what one of these atoms or atomic units is in terms of a fact and insight and a recommendation. Yeah. Um, so I think the really useful thing to do is try and uh, think about why we're, you know, ever doing any research and why a repository, for, um, for example, exists. And that is to make decisions, right? So sometimes it could be the research themselves making those decisions, but quite often we're delivering them to a stakeholder. So it's actually sometimes really useful to think of it um, conceptually from the first point, which is the, rec the, the last point in the journey, I suppose, which, um, as the recommendation. So um, the way that it works is I see a recommendation. I think we should do this. We should build this feature or we should change this thing or uh, whatever it may be. And then working backwards, we can see the insights, which is like the thinking behind the idea why we think we should do that. Um, you know, what, why has this idea come about? And then each one of those uh, insights would also then be connected to the evidence. What's the, you know, so you, you say that this is the case, but why do you think that? Well, we spoke to these people over here. We've got that data from over there. And that's really important. We can bring different data points and different types of evidence, different types of research from anywhere. You know, so that could even be internal. It could be that we've spoken to someone internally and they go, we really need a new app. <laughs> you know, why do you say that? Well, because of this, we had, you know, I think it's because of this, you know, that's internal evidence. We're probably not going to build an entire feature just because someone internally said so, you know, especially like you get the hippo highest paid person's opinion, right? Okay, well, you know, they might actually have a point, you know, as, as humans, we can be very... Uh, intuitive can't we so yeah well okay that's a data source as long as we're aware that that has come from internally it's not a customer speaking it's um, or even if it is a customer speaking that is one person or several people it doesn't isn't necessarily reflective of the whole all of our customers all of our users mm -hmm. so actually now we've got this data over here it's more quantitative we can bring all these elements together till we get the confidence um, to be able to um, make that decision. And importantly, once we've made that decision, right, we're going to try this thing. Hopefully it's a bit smaller than building a whole app, but, you know, making a change or building a feature, I think very digitally. So excuse me with that, but um, I always tend to work within the digital sphere. So um, uh, yeah, so it could be, uh, we've even got people who've used, used this process in our, in our product for uh, things like, um, um, investments you know um, so it was one of the the first ones that I came across where they were using it outside of the UX field and it really surprised me that um, I'd always been thinking it as a UX process and, and, a, and gleaning as a UX product and then there was this uh, team that were making decisions on whether they were going to buy a company you know so it was a big mm. European company looking to spend something like 50 million euros on buying this um, small startup and um, they were showing how they're bringing all of this evidence together, right? Um, and uh, from uh, industry-wide data on like kind of what's the industry going to, 
um, to internal documents and financials and interviews with um, shareholders and things like that. They're able to bring this all together to make a, make a decision. The weirdest one I've ever seen is an organization that um, studies murders. So they were actually trying to solve murders. Um, and the problem they had was that, that they have all of this different types of evidence from interview to very scientific, like blood splatter evidence. And there isn't really a very good way of bringing that all together. So they found that Atomic really helped them um, because it's completely agnostic on where that information has come from. We can say, right, we, we know that this happened because of that blood splatter. We know that this person was in the area or whatever it may be. We can bring all of these elements together in a really useful way. And importantly, we can also do it negatively. So um, if we've got evidence that actually pushes us away for something, we, we can join that up just as equally as, as evidence for something. So we can really have a nice balanced holistic view. The uh, murder example is interesting for a few reasons. <laughs> yeah. um, right. I think there are organizations that solve uh, murders, I guess, private and uh, uh, not private ones. Um, but it's almost like you're talking about like trying to really break down and diagram maybe to use the murder example, like what's going on in the detective's head, right? Like ping, mm. ping, 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 like making these associations, but making that sort of scalable for lots of non-murderous use cases as well. I think more than that as well is that it's it may not just be a detective. It may be mm. there is a detective in charge of it, but you've got someone who's doing the interviews. You've got someone who specializes in DNA. You've got someone who specializes in, you know, uh, taking data from, you know, our digital spies in the corner like Alexa and Google and such like. Yeah. You know, they, they, they can tell us a lot. And yeah, so they've got all of these different specialists and they've all got these different pieces of knowledge and, and things to bring to the table. And actually bringing them all together in a really useful way can be really mm -hmm. difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's no. great. I feel, like, I feel like I'm hosting cereal right now. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> We're going to crack this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so to build on this a little, though, um, you know, to take it back to maybe a digital thing, I, I do a usability se session, right? You probably generate a ton of, like, facts and insights from even one mm. session, right? Like 50, 100, as you really kind of break these down into, into these small atomic units. Um, how do you, as a team is doing, you know, maybe five of these sessions in a week or whatever, just how do you deal with like the volume of, you know, facts, insights, recommendations that are going to come out of that? And do you, are you putting categories on them or you just, mm. it, it feels like, you know, practically speaking, it's a, probably a hard thing to manage. I mean, this is where we started was I was actually working for Just Eat, um, which is justeattakeaway.com now. It's a massive uh, food takeaway, biggest in the world, I believe. Um, I think they only skip the dishes in the US. I might be wrong. Um, so yeah, this is an organization that has many brands and many parts to it. Um, and I started leading the accessibility team. I actually founded the accessibility team there. Now the thing about accessibility is, is a, a, the organization had a lot of knowledge around it, but very rarely people were studying accessibility. It's more, they were working on something and there's an accessibility part. They learn something. There's a useful either insight or at least a bit of data that would form an insight. So we were having to go through these piles and piles and piles of research reports, just like tons and tons of them, to find these little, little kind of nuggets of uh, juicy goodness in there. Um, and it was so frustrating. We were like, how can we pull insights out of a research um, report 
without using the important context that the report gives. And this is how we kind of approach this. So I need to be really clear, you know, I, I get the credit of being the creator of Atomic, but actually it was a, it was a process that was developed alongside many people, especially within Just Eat and outside. We work with uh, Monzo and Printing.com, which you would know in the UK, <laughs> probably not else, out, outside of the UK, um, uh, and a, a, a good few other companies as well. Um, so yeah, th- that was the where we started with was we have all of this part of knowledge and it's really hard to keep hold of it. And this way of being able to break things down, kind of, uh, you know, give insights and recommendations, their own lives outside of that individual research report, that particular study, um, is what allowed them to be able to expand and grow. Um, we see them kind of ebbing and flowing. You know, there's more evidence at the moment that this is true actually, this is changing now. There's more evidence that that isn't true anymore, you know. So people aren't, you know, leaving the house because of COVID. Things have changed massively. We've actually recently started working with a, a UK bank. We work with a few um, uh, financial institutes around the world, but there's one in particular that we started working with recently. And it was interesting when they said, like, um, uh, they were saying people think of banking as being quite traditional and slow to move. And at the time I was speaking to him, they said uh, the uh, the prime minister we had, one of the three we had last year, had just made an announcement that had basically destroyed the economy overnight. Uh, and, and loads of people, millions of people lost their mortgage applications and things like that. So they said, right, literally something happened yesterday, which is affecting us today. And we have to react to that. You know, people want to know what's the status of their mortgage, what's going to happen. You know, they're coming up to renewal. They need to deal with that. Um, so even in like kind of very like what people might think of as quite slow moving organizations, things are happening all the time, all of these things um, moving and changing. And the great thing about Atomic is um, unlike traditional research reports that tend to be kind of carved in stone and um, uh, it's very easy to pick an older report and just assume that it's true. Uh, with this, because we can connect all of these different parts from even uh, not just across the organization, but even outside the organization, we can bring them together and uh, really help us understand what is true at the moment and what's changing, where the pattern's lying. And that can be really interesting. Awesome. So I want to go back to, you've got the three parts. There's the the fact, the insight, and the recommendation. Is that right? Uh, so there's the uh, experiment as well is, is kind of, you could see that as more of a, um context for the facts mm. so we always mm-hmm. say facts belong inside of an experiment but mm. we find that experiments have you know what you might call a source you know what the thing that we did to find this mm-hmm. information mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that has a lot of its own kind of its own uh, information so we kind of treat that separately and so is this like all one unit the fact that inside in the recommendation or can facts map map to multiple insights which map to multiple yeah. recommendations and what is that what's the sort of that's shape the of where it, that's where it gets really powerful you see yeah. is you know just breaking it down it's, it helps you understand it um so for instance one of the, um one of the most common things i hear uh, from researchers using the process for the first time is um deliberately separating the evidence the kind of understanding and the decision really helps them go you know it's very easy let me put this a different way It's very easy for us to say, right, the user said this or the user did this, so we're going to do that. But actually defining the why, 
those mm-hmm. two things connect mm-hmm. is really powerful really simple but actually really powerful and so often people come to me and say I thought I understood my research till I started using that process and then I've started thinking about it in a different way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but anyway I've slightly gone off track there so yeah the um being able to connect it to multiple things an insight doesn't belong to an experiment it doesn't mm-hmm. belong to how we learned it it's connected to to the fact so mm-hmm. we can connect lots of facts from different parts um inside and outside the organization to really see do we know this or not uh an insight um mm-hmm. and but also we can have a one fact you know if the customer said this or the customer did this we may disagree on what that means Mm-hmm. And we don't need to argue about it. We can just have two different insights, right? Or mm-hmm. we might have an insight we're really excited about, might have two different ideas on how to approach it and what we should do next. Well, that's great. Well, let's test it. You know, let's mm-hmm. see what works mm-hmm. and what doesn't work. So it actually really helps that exploration um, and kind of, you know, um, broadening our ideas of uh, what to do next. And mm-hmm. yeah, I find that's something that a lot of people really appreciate about the process. You had um you'd mentioned research reports at some point, um, and I'm curious. Do you see that teams who adopt you know a more atomic approach they just start using the atomic insights for everything, and, and research reports kind of go by the wayside, or they do they coexist? Like you atomize all this stuff and categorize it, but you still write a report to maybe give the high level summary for folks. We did a survey with our customers about it's probably over a year now. It might be even like back year and a half so it's maybe a little bit out of date but what we found at that point is customers especially we're kind of specialized at the moment at least more with internal teams kind of works almost better for internal teams um so i think it is different if you've got uh, external stakeholders i think you're almost definitely going to need to deliver something like as a you know almost like a brochure at the end of it like this is what we did for you but for internal teams, yeah, it's it's really common now to say, right, I've got this recommendation, share it with a colleague. Or, oh, you're working on that. I've got an insight that will help you. Here you go. Um, and the great thing there is that really massively reduces reporting. Um, and when we did that survey, we found that it reduced it by between about 70 and 80%. So, you know, there's still about 30 and 20% of times where they uh, a report was, was needed. Um, but one of the benefits, especially of being able to share a recommendation or insight as a like an atomic unit, is people can explore out from there. So, for instance, you may send me a recommendation and I'll look at it and go, great, yeah, I, I trust JH with this. It looks like he's done his research, he knows what he's talking about. Cool, off you go. Um, especially if it's a fairly small, minor change, right? But if it's a really big decision... I need to have a certain amount of confidence. It doesn't necessarily mean a lot of evidence, but I need to have really good confidence um, in, in what we're seeing here. I'll probably read every single little bit, right? I can choose my own adventure, which is really great. So when you've got different uh, stakeholders and decision makers that have different levels or different approaches to what they need, they can, you know, they can explore, you know, cho- as I say, choose their own adventure. And we find that people... Um, Sometimes it's a bit like, you know, that thing that happens on Wikipedia. There's a little bit of a rabbit war. It's like, oh, we did this experiment, did we? That's interesting. I want to read more about that. Oh, I didn't realize we did this as well. And it kind of, because everything's connected, you can end up kind of uh, going, ex- go exploring and get lost in the data and it, it gets really rich. The other thing 
that I think is quite interesting as well is I've, I talk quite a lot about, you know, kind of starting with the experiment, all the facts, and then synthesizing into insights and recommendations. But quite often that happens the other way around as well. So it might be someone comes along and says, I think we should do this. Well, we can treat that as a hypothesis and start with a recommendation and go backwards and say, right, do we have anything, any data that supports this? Mm. And either very quickly go, that's a terrible idea, or go, actually, yeah, there's some value here. And that means we're investing in things that we already um, we already have good evidence for. And, you know, we already know there's some value there. Now, of course, you can do that with research reports, but you've got a lot of processes. You know, it's like going to a physical library. You know, imagine we still had to do that. You know, <laughs> people do still do that, but it takes a long time. It's a very dedicated, difficult, long process. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's easier just to go, yeah, well, let's just give it a go, right? With a, an atomic or an insights-based um, uh, repository, you can just go in there and go, what do we know about this subject? Have we got anything to back this up and make not necessary solid decisions but at least have a, a finger in the air and go yeah this is this has got some legs let's maybe invest a little bit into this let's do a bit of research mm-hmm. at least we can see where the gaps in knowledge are as well and and practically how do you go about finding that evidence so let's just say like just to be meta because it's fun i have a hypothesis that user interviews should build a research repository mm-hmm. um, i want to go and and find evidence to support or not support that this is a good idea Is it based on tags or how is this information sort of like fitting together to then go find that? Yeah. So one one thing I always try to be clear on is that the atomic process kind of starts with assuming there's a certain amount of processing of the data, right? So if you've got a a repository that's rich with data, you can probably answer some questions. Um, The better tagged it is, the better taxonomy you have, the easier that stuff is going to be to discover. One of the benefits of the atomic process is because we have these connections um, between things, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a little bit more human. I, always, I often refer to it as coding via stealth, right? Mm-hmm. Because we work a lot with non-researchers doing research. And I mean, I'm, I'm meant to be a professional researcher and I hate tagging and I hate coding. You know, it's such a boring task. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, yeah, so by saying what well, this fact connects to this insight, I'm connecting metadata there. Mm-hmm. And maybe those individual items are tagged as well. Um, the way that I tend to treat it is uh, my aim is to give each of those elements context. So if I've got a an insight, I might say, right, this is being tested in France, it's been tested in Germany, it's been tested in Italy. So that's great. If I came in, you know, looking for Spain, I can probably look at that insight and go, right, this is, I probably want to retest it for Spain, but I can be pretty confident. But do you know what? We're working in Japan and that's such a different culture. I don't think that evidence is strong enough for us to make a decision. We need to definitely retest this, right? But at least there's still all humans at the end of the day. So there's some evidence here that this is probably going to have some value. So yeah, good tagging, good taxonomy really helps. But the good thing, especially in organizations where there's difficulty in getting um, a consistency or um, uh, engagement with uh, best practices, that very human way of connecting one thing to another and saying this is related to this, which is related to this, uh, it kind of solves it. I've seen whole quite large repositories with almost no tagging, no taxonomy. And they work, you know, not as well as they would have done if they did, you know, fully invested in that. But I often say to people that, um, especially with an atomic repository, that quantity is more important than quality, which is really rare in this world. Right. Hmm. But 
with, with research, if it's not in the repository, it basically doesn't exist. People aren't going to know about it and it will get lost. It'll get forgotten. At least if it's there, we can go and it's poorly coded. It may be found if it's connected to something that's connected to something that I know, I'm aware of, I'll probably find it. And then I can go, right, why is this not being coded? Let's get this sorted out. <laughs> but at least I've got the opportunity to discover it. Right? Hmm. I like that. Yeah, I like that framing. You've been thinking about this and working on this stuff for a while, you know, a number of years now. Um, how has it changed or not from when you first started, you know, getting into this? Is like, is it pretty similar and just kind of evolved a little bit, or is it, are there parts that are actually quite a bit different and become, you know, much more sophisticated or change your thinking on it? That's a really good question. I think um, it's mostly stayed similar, um, and obviously there is a certain amount that is uh kind of difficult to change because in you know we've talked there's lots of organizations using it it needs to almost maintain the standard so one of the things that especially as ux people being involved right we love to talk about terminology and get really fussy around terminology myself included and yeah i think when when i started this um maybe through a lack of confidence in it or wanting to make it sound slightly more official than, than uh, I maybe needed to. I used very kind of scientific terminology. You know, we had experiment rather than study or source or something like that. Um, that's the most commonly changed terminology I see on Gloomly. Um, uh, facts, I'm, I'm, I quite support. I think insights can be confusing because a lot of people think of insights, what we might call uh, a fact. So that's always an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, recommendation we actually used to call conclusion. So when we first started this process, it was actually called conclusion. If, if you see my first Medium article, there's still some references to it in there. Um, but that was definitely wrong because conclusion sounds like it's final, right? Well, it's just the beginning of the journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's that's so terminology has definitely been one that comes up again and again. I see quite often that people sometimes add other layers to it so either a layer maybe in the middle or a layer at the end or something I'm, I'm trying my best to think of an example and completely coming up cold I'm so sorry but the um every I've always been interested in that and I've quite often there's been a couple of times I've been tempted to officially kind of bring it in and like you know not that I'm like the gatekeeper of this but you know um being able to say like yeah actually we really recommend that you add this extra section on um you know that's um that could be quite interesting. Every time I've looked at it, I've always felt, yeah, it's right for that organization. I can understand why they've chosen to do it, but I think it makes it slightly more complicated than it needs to for most people. And simplicity is part of the power, right? Mm-hmm. It needs to be accessible by everybody, especially um, non-researchers doing research. That That's such an important um, place. But even more than that are the stakeholders. This is the thing we always we have the front of mind whenever we're designing around this product, around this process, um, is who are we doing it for? It's the people making decisions. And as I said earlier, sometimes they're researchers, but quite often they're not. And they need to be able to come in without any idea of what, what it is. They don't need like an hour's training or going to a boot camp or something like that. They need to be able to come in and understand that data straight away and understand the data and be able to make good quality decisions straight away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's always, you know, our focus on what we're doing it for. You, you've talked a bit about non-researchers doing research throughout so far, and that's definitely something we're thinking about a lot is Sure, you hear about democratization, you know, talking about that for a while, but point is non-researchers are doing more research from what we can tell than than ever before. 
Um, and so I'm curious how that fits with atomic research to you. Are you finding that this just clicks with non-researchers or that it needs to be adapted? What about, you know, there's this sort of, if you think about the, the library, the repository, kind of putting the insight in and coding it up, and then there's the pulling it out of the library and using it. Um, who's, who's finding this to be uh, something that works for their workflow, more or less researchers, non-researchers, and how is everybody playing together around this system? Mm. So we tend to find that the people in the organization that are bringing a product like Gleany in or aware of the process of Atomic tend to be researchers, right? Professional mm -hmm. researchers. Um, but I would say maybe three out of four clients that I speak to, one of the first things they're saying in their objectives, not just in their objectives, but probably one of the first primary objectives is, is de-siloing knowledge, mm -hmm. right? And... Um, so by that very definition, that means it's going to be across different disciplines. So I'm seeing a lot of companies where there are research teams managing non-researchers. Um, so more and more like UX researchers that entire job is not to do research, but to manage the process of it. Uh, Reops, I suppose, research op ops. And um, uh, yeah, so that's that's getting more and more common. But, you know, when, when we're de-siloing, when we're, you know... I, I made this mistake when I started with this process, thinking this was a UX process and knowledge management was a uniquely UX thing. And of course it is. And that was so naive of me. Um, you know, marketing has loads of knowledge. Sales have loads of knowledge, especially sales, right? They tend to be on the front front, uh, front lines and customer service even more so. Um, but it's interesting, like in our organization, we even have uh, like the developers using the repository because if I'm designing a product, one of the limitations is what can the, the software do? What can the technology do? Or, you know, some of the opportunities I might not even be aware of. So I'm, I'm really uh, keen when I do research to bring a cross-functional team in. So if I've got a database analyst or someone like that on, uh, uh, you know, processing the research, likelihood is they're going to be aware of a, a, a possibility that wouldn't even come into my world because I'm so much uh, so far away from database management you know um, I come from a UI background so yeah um, the, I find that Atomic is a really good framework for non-researchers uh, because it gives that kind of lightweight lightweight let me try that again it gives that lightweight structure to the research they're doing um, and the knowledge they're trying to form and keeps a certain consistency as well. So we talked about tagging earlier. One of the tools that we have in, in Gleaning, we, we create like uh, what we call uh, custom filters, but they're categorized tags, I think any researcher would know them as. And the, the benefit of that is it gives a consistency of coding. You've got this consistency of structure uh, around, like we've got this evidence, um, this is where it came from, separately this is our opinion on that so we're not getting those two muddled up and bringing in bias and then separately what we're going to do about it which allows us to kind of bring new evidence to bear and change our mind and uh, and encourages retesting as well these things you know are being drummed into us as researchers but may not come so naturally to other people that are really excited about their new idea you know and want to just build it they don't care about necessarily the evidence behind it so, yeah, uh, generally I've, I'm, we're seeing a lot of, um, I would say there's more non-researchers um, that have really been helped with this than, than, um, than uh, researchers. But where it's really helping the researchers is uh, being able to scale their work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
that's really useful. You, uh, How? Yeah, you talked about uh, quantity over quality, which I love because no one ever says that. Um, but <laughs> it's a nice I can't think of any other part of the uh, of life you know <laughs> where, yeah. where quantity rather than quality is is, is no uh... but it, I, I like that a lot and I think it's approachable for you know for the non-researchers uh as well is there um uh, like a guideline you have in terms of you know you're doing a 30 minute to 60 minute user interview some kind of moderated research uh, like what's a fact or not a fact how big should the fact you know I think we're, when we think about volume obviously uh, and you talked about what the 255 character limit, right? They should be mm -hmm. small, I suppose, in a relative scale. But um, if you already have this fact, for example, in your repository, well represented, do you need to sort of add it again? Or are you looking in a half hour conversation to get five facts, 10 facts, 100 facts? Or is that um, the wrong way to think about it? Um, how, do, how do you encourage particularly yeah, non-researchers? I think it could be the wrong way to think about it. Yeah, it, it should be what's useful, you know. Okay. An atom is a useful piece of, of knowledge that guides us, right? And, and that may not be straight away. One of the first organizations uh, outside of Just Eat that I worked with with this process, um, one of the things we did is we went through some of their legacy research and we noticed this kept, the same pattern came came up several times. Um, and they'd made a note of it, but they didn't really think it important because it wasn't what they were researching. It was a different department that was responsible for that thing. But because we were creating this atomic process, you know, we're bringing all of these things together. We're, this was building up more and more evidence. You know, it was coming up in about one in every three or four um, uh, experiments. So we actually took that to um, uh, to that department and said, oh, by the way, just to let you know, we've been finding this information. It might be useful for you. And they were like, oh, my God, this is really serious really <laughs> okay uh, they said yeah we're coming up to our you know biggest trading period of the year so like where 70 percent of our revenue comes from and we won't be able to properly trade unless we sort this out now luckily it was actually quite a simple thing to sort they had about two months to go and it only took them about two weeks to get it sorted but they weren't aware of it the company was aware of it they just didn't know they were about <laughs> it so actually you know being able to bring all these things together was was um uh was really useful and so in that regard you know it's that there seemed to be something to record there, and I, I I can't really define it much more than that because um, sometimes it may be that uh, you have an interview with someone and yeah, it's just it just things are coming out, it's just pure gold, and sometimes it's just like checking off some boxes. Yeah, they can do this. Yes, they can do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in that regard, some quite often people ask like, okay, so I've had three people do the same thing. Do I create three different facts, or can I say three? out of five people did this and once again there is no right or wrong way and it really depends on what what's right for you guys and what's right for the people doing it the useful thing if you've got it three times it shows that kind of quantity um but just because a lot is happening to a lot of people doesn't mean it's um you know something that's only happening to one person isn't important because that could be really serious that could be a blocker right so you know that that shouldn't be the be all and end all um the um uh, sorry, I've slightly lost my train of thought there. <laughs> Excuse me. No, all uh, good. Yeah. So you're saying basically don't force it. And it's, you know, if it's useful, which obviously yeah. this is something that trained Ooh. researchers get better and better at over time, right? Knowing what's useful and what's not. But if it's That's useful, it. it's a fact. If it's if it's not, it's not. You got it. 
also on the point of like what makes a fact and what makes an insight that can be really interesting and you know as i say by the the clues in the names that it has to be factual but even then i'm um one of my favorite um occurrences is when i was actually on a call with their client and they had put um some results from a survey in um through the process and they had an insight which was something along the lines of um you know 70 percent of our customers prefer green clothing to other colors uh, and I said, I don't think that's, so the conversation started around, is that a fact or an insight? Mm-hmm. But it became so much more. It was fantastic. So I said, because this was what the survey told us, what the respondents of the survey told us, it's a fact. It's not our opinion, right? Mm-hmm. What's interesting there is, why is that, right? Why, why is that? First of all, is that an unusual number? Second of all, um, is that is that kind of borne out with actually other data? So luckily, someone on that call had access to their sales data and was able very quickly to go, yeah, we're selling a lot more green clothes than any other color, hmm. right? Okay, so we've got two points of evidence here. We have no idea why this is. We're going to have to start doing some interviews. You know, let's um, let's find out. But they could still start thinking about, well, maybe it's something to do with our branding. Is it to do with this? To you know. Um, Okay, but also when we're thinking about the insights, it's not just the cause of it, but the effect. What does this mean to us? Should we lean into this and become the green clothing company? Or are we kind of leaving out um, all these customers that like prefer red clothing? Um, you know, is there an opportunity here? Or is this a problem? Um, and straight away, you know, someone said, right, one of the recommendations is we should probably change the hero image on the homepage. So on that call, they, you know, someone <laughs> was busy creating an A-B test while we were discussing this. Uh, I didn't see them to about one or two months later. And I can't remember the number, but it was quite a significant rise um, uh, in conversion from that thing. And they said they paid for the software like 10 times over just for that one call because they discovered this thing. They they could see it there. The data was there. This The company had knew this stuff. It just was not really, it hadn't kind of struck a chord. It hadn't been turned into something, you know, it hadn't Mm. actually been um, turned into something usable and tangible before. Uh, And that was so beautiful for me to see. And quite rarely do I get to see that in action, you know. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes I hear the stories, but it was lovely to actually be a part of that and be involved with that as it happened. It was really exciting. (laughs) Yeah. Well, why why though? Why do they like the green clothing? I want to. Well, no, that's a really good question because they one the the strongest theory at the time was that it's something to do with their branding, but their branding wasn't green. So interesting. I think green's just a good color. Yeah. I was going to say it was like St. Patrick's Day or something. It was like a seasonal. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Or colorblind. With the red and the green, I don't know, like, yeah, something yeah. happening there. So, one of the things I don't know whether they did this one, but one of the things you know, obviously, you'd want to do there is maybe have a look at you know, is that uh, just a standard uh, national representation of like you know, most customers, most people prefer green clothing? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to check in with them about that because yeah. I, I quite often use that story because I really love it, but I, mm-hmm. that's a really good question, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, so, there's been a lot of nuance we've we've hit on here in terms of how you do this. You, you know, do you lump the three things together, put them in three times, and some of the other um things you've touched on? If a team is curious about this stuff, is atomic research something you can kind of like dip your toe in the water and try yeah, it here true. and there, or you got to kind of go all in and be like, we're doing this, it's a new thing, like, let's commit and figure it out? How do you get started? <sighs> I think it's something that you can you, you can definitely just do on a on a project basis just to test it out as as a you know is this a good way to synthesize uh, and to understand our knowledge um, that's probably the best place to start uh, and that's certainly where we started just with whiteboards you know um, 
I think if you're looking at it and you need to create a repository, a repository is one of those things it's it's all in or all out kind of thing. Um, so, um, yeah, easiest way to get started is literally on Miro or something like that, just literally, you know, um, creating facts and drawing lines to um, to create insights. Uh, that's how we started. Um, uh, we then went to uh, Airtable to try and create a more formalized thing, but very quickly we found that um, uh, Airtable is a fantastic, flexible product, but um, it, it couldn't scale quite how we wanted and there was particularly um, a couple of things we wanted to be able to do that we couldn't. So one of the things we can do on Gleanly, for instance, is changing how we look at something so we can see um, the world from the point of view of, of a fact or see the world from the point of view of a recommendation, which probably sounds quite weird <laughs> as I put it like that, but it does make sense, I promise you. Um, and uh, so that's one of the reasons we built software. We only built the software because we had certain things we wanted to achieve. You can absolutely do the process without the software, especially for smaller organizations, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're loan research, we have plenty of loan researchers or small organizations using the product, but they don't have to. You can get away with using anything. When it comes to actually making this a formal part of how an organization works, I, there is a, a level of commitment there, and that's a real difficult thing to get around. Um, it's difficult for legacy, uh, but I think the biggest difficulty is, is engagement, especially we're talking about non-researchers earlier doing research. They're the hardest people to engage in something like this, uh, so much so we, we, we did some research not too long ago and it was really interesting what we found because there was a couple of things we were expecting. So first of all, they're not researchers. This isn't a part of their, this is just a part of their kind of actual role, you know? So they're trying to get the answers for the thing they want to do. Um, so they've got their answers that move on, right? They, they don't really necessarily see the benefit in, in uh, or fully understand that, you know, how valuable a repository can be to them. Um, secondly it's a new piece of software they have to learn it that's quite off-putting but the thing that maybe should have been obvious but was a surprise to me was actually the biggest one which was I'm not a researcher I don't necessarily feel confident in my research you UX people always telling me how difficult it is and why you should earn so much money right Um, I, I don't feel confident I've never had training in this I don't want to put my research on display in front of my whole company mm. all of my colleagues um, which was Oh God, yeah, it's one of those kind of sunrise moments where I was just like, of course, that makes absolute sense. How do we deal with that? Actually, we found just recognizing it, just literally calling it out and saying, yeah, you're probably going to feel a little bit um, exposed here, maybe a bit vulnerable here. That's okay. That's normal. Actually, that is enough, (laughs) surprisingly. Um, uh, You know, we'll keep on looking at that and seeing if if there's even better ways and more ways. But I think even just recognizing that and rather than getting frustrated with people, uh, kind of empathizing with them, which we're good at as as researchers, right, for the most part, Um, understanding where they, you know, where they might feel uncomfortable. But, yeah, certainly worth testing it out, giving it a go, um, seeing what works, what doesn't work changing things i think you know we talk about a process and you know that can feel like you have to do it a certain way there's a right way or a wrong way and there isn't there just isn't there's definitely best practices and things that i've seen worked uh, i've got a cheat sheet um which you can probably just google uh, ux re- uh, sorry atomic ux research cheat sheet it'll, it'll probably come up uh, which can be useful 
but there is no right or wrong way. So every organization is different. Um, every individual is different. So yeah, um, do it your way. <laughs> we'll, we'll link that in the show notes too. Oh, please do. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been so interesting. And I want to, I want to create some atomic nuggets myself right now. <laughs> yeah, please Sounds do. <laughs> Let's start frying up some nuggets. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs>